Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Jo Vigor, Assistant Director for Leadership and Organisational Development here at the King's Fund and your host for this episode. Before we get started, just a reminder to fill in our podcast survey to help us improve the podcast and be in with a chance of winning a free ticket to one of our upcoming virtual conferences. Follow the link in the show notes. So today, we're joined by a really very special guest, Dr. Nikki Kanani, Medical Director of Primary Care at NHS England and a GP. We'll be talking about her role overseeing the COVID vaccination rollout in general practice and her experience of being a leader, balancing a high-profile national role with work on the front line. Nikki, I'm an absolute fan of yours. I've seen you speak at different conferences. I know you've done some work with us before. So it's an absolute delight to be here with you today. So welcome to the King's Fund podcast. Thank you, Joe. And, you know, I've got a really special relationship with the King's Fund over a very long, very, very long time. Um, So it's a real pleasure to be here and be able to talk to you today. How are you? It's been a really mammoth, intense couple of years. How are you doing? Thank you for asking. Um, I think that's one of the hardest questions to answer at the moment, isn't it? Um, it's such a big and such a small, honest question. Um, how am I? I? I'm okay. I am very focused on making sure that I get a bit of time with my kids every day because they just help to sort of centre and focus um, me and do some practical things like learn how to slow down again, learn how to sleep a bit better again. All the things that many of us have experienced, particularly over the last two and a half years where we've been going at such a pace, there's still a sense of urgency. There's still a huge amount of things for us all to do. But just trying to reconnect with the little things that make me me, seeing friends and family a little bit, you know, they're all starting to help me um, feel okay again. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for that honesty as well, because just that phrase, doing some of the small things that help you be me, will resonate with so many of our listeners that are listening in today. It's so important, isn't it, to really look after yourself. So thank you for that honesty and that response. I thought we could um, start to think about and have a chat through the vaccine rollout before we move into your leadership journey, because I'm really fascinated by the leadership journey and what brought you here today. But I'm keen to get your reflections on the rollout of the vaccines in general practice as you were part of coordinating an impressive juggling act, balancing the need for primary care to continue business as usual whilst playing its part in delivering vaccinations and boosters too. And reflecting back on that rollout, I mean, it was an incredible success with more than 118 million vaccines. I think we should just pause for a moment there. 118 million vaccines, of which I was part of that as well, so thank you, administered a 92% uptake for first doses in England. Really, really impressive. And I'm really interested to hear your personal reflections on the rollout. What did you learn from um, leading in that process? Oh, gosh, um, Joe, so much. So first of all, I I just want to thank our teams because we have, you're right, we have achieved something that felt impossible. If you think back to November 2020, so the week before Diwali, I was asked to come and join the vaccine programme. And I remember thinking, 
knowing that we weren't going to have a Diwali like we had the year before, you know, because we'd been in the depths and in the darkness of of the pandemic. And we just had this moment, like a glimmer of light, which is so appropriate for Diwali, but this glimmer of light of a vaccine. And we didn't know quite what was possible. We didn't know quite what we would achieve. We knew it was our only hope. We knew we had to put everything we could into getting this right. But Joe, so one of the things that I learned was just this incredible ability for people to come together. And we saw that partly in the pandemic, that sense of community, that sense of society coming to look after each other in a way that we haven't seen for a long time. But in the vaccine programme, we, we took all of that, all of that energy, all of those people, and you saw it play out in a way that just honestly amazed me every single day it's it will always be the proudest thing that I've ever been part of I will always know that that's that's kind of one of the key things about how you can work well like learning from each other trusting each other and that really plays into some of the stuff that I've probably talked about the King's Fund before but a diverse team isn't just diverse in terms of its ethnic background but it really is across that breadth of experience of expertise of um you know, protective characteristics, all of those different things that come together to make sure that we can deliver something really quite incredible um, for the people that we're here to look after. And I guess a couple of things about me as an individual. Um, I um, learned that I am more resilient than I realised and resilience can be toxic at times, but I kept going and the teams around me kept going and we all kept going together in a way that um, really I can look back now and think I'm I'm not quite sure how we managed to. but also just that ability to manage the time that we had. And, you know, we'd be in here by seven. There were times we weren't leaving until 11 or 12. We worked every weekend, every day going um, just to make sure that we were able to maximise this incredible opportunity. And it made a difference. You know, it really did make a difference. And then I guess one more point, Joe, if I may, it's just that real importance of a core purpose. And so we had a really clear kind of value and aspiration for the vaccine program. But one of the other things that sort of sat alongside that was the concept that no one gets left behind. And that was a drumbeat alongside the fact that the vaccine was liquid gold. And those two things helped us to be really focused on making sure we care for our communities and we build vaccine confidence. But it allowed us to be much more responsive and agile than, you know, we've been in other parts of of health, actually. So it really helped us to kind of get into communities, build relationships and protect people who actually hadn't felt safe at all through the pandemic or prior to the pandemic. So, I mean, there's probably so many other things as well, but they're probably the the, the parts of the last, particularly the last 18 months that have really stood out for me. I mean, the, the passion and the energy that's just emanating from you at the moment is is. Uh, phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And with those types of themes in mind, Nikki, have you taken some of those forward, some of those lessons learnt? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm seeing across um, our teams at each level of the system is that we're talking so much more about our responsibility for communities, underserved communities, communities that traditionally didn't get the airspace or the the, the time um, that we've kind of been able to create through the vaccine program. And all of a sudden, we're talking about equity in a way that really resonates for people. We're talking about the fact that, you know, actually, um, and we had an example near my own practice, you know, we looked at the 
the vaccine uptake up the road and we saw that it was lower for a particular community. We had this fantastic tool, this fantastic data that allowed us to see that. And we were able to look underneath it and say, okay, oh, there's a community centre up there. Let's go up to the community centre and see if we can talk about why that local community might not be taking up the vaccine talked to a community leader who sort of was quite anxious initially, but eventually we built up a relationship. We were able to go in, hold a vaccine clinic there, build that relationship locally. And now we're exploring what else we can do, you know, whether it is basic health checks, whether it is actually talking about how we keep ourselves uh, mentally and physically healthy. Um, there's a little, there's a youth group near there as well. So like, what, you know, what can we do now to build on that relationship that will help our youth? And suddenly you can see how we can start to actually reverse some of those really deeply inbuilt health inequalities that last for generations. And instead, we're going to kind of get ahead of that. And we need some patience because that's going to take time. But our ability to get ahead of that and start to think about how we can actually care for people in a way that we haven't had the time, space, opportunity focus to is is really exciting for me. Do you think that the pandemic has speeded up that change for you? So is that one of the, 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 the good benefits that have come out of these incredibly awful two years Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that has to be the the primary piece. You know, it's shown a really clear light on the inequalities that exist in our in our systems, wider than health, right? I mean, it was really interesting when Baroness Hallett, I think last week, we positioned the COVID inquiry to say, actually, my number one lens is going to be the lens of health and well, inequalities more broadly, but health in the context of COVID. Those are the sorts of things I think we take forward, and it means that we give not just better life opportunities for the people that we're here to serve, but actually better satisfaction for our workforce who have been through the most torrid two and a half years that we could ever expect. What are the one or two of the main challenges that you think general practice is facing in the next few years? I think the the thing that I really do have to think about and talk about is the access debate. And we could make it really binary, couldn't we? We could just make it about, you know, whether someone sees a patient face to face or not and who sees them. But that's not what I mean. What I mean by access is making sure that the breadth of our community feels like they have a portal in to getting health care, being healthy, preventative care as well. And so if that is what access is, what have we learned through the pandemic? Well, we've learned that general practice particularly innovated incredibly quickly to keep staff and their patients safe by offering remote care. That was phenomenal. Let's not forget that. And actually, we probably over-indexed on face-to-face care before the pandemic because we had a kind of societal perception that everyone has to be seen face-to-face by a GP. That's not true. You know, actually, at times, a majority of my patients will get better care from our pharmacist, our physiotherapist, our nurse practitioner, our HCA, and they can do that remotely and they can do that face-to-face. And so I guess one of the big challenges to your question is how do we help the public and the profession to a point recognise that a blended access model is still a good model? So my children will not have the same relationship with their GP or their GP team in the way that I did. I grew up knowing my GP and going um, to fairs with her on my own when I was eight years old. You know, she chuck me in the car and I go I go to a fair you know like a fun fair um, and we were, we were we were very close my children won't have that relationship but they will have their phones and they will be able to be you know digitally savvy they still need the opportunity to access healthcare in a way that works for them and equally it has to work for our workforce um, and so those tensions are playing out now Joe. we see it in the media we see it in the profession we see it in the in the real concern that patients feel um, and the public feels but you know th- this is our opportunity now to really 
learn from our communities, what access might look like for them, what continuity might look like for them, what a digital offer might look like for them. Because actually, when we think about what we can offer digitally, we're not saying digital only, we're just saying digital first. Digital first, if you feel comfortable to do so. And if not, actually, here's the other suite of offers that we'll give you. So this is the journey we're going on, Joe. I think it is going to be a complex few years, but I firmly believe that the general practice profession and the wider primary care community have the skills and assets to take us to the place where the public continues to recognise the value of general practice um, within the health system. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll hear more from our guest in a moment. Do you work in or around general practice? Are you curious about what the future of general practice will look like? Join us in person on the 28th of June for our general practice conference. Together, we'll work through some of the pressing issues facing general practice today, such as how to lead and sustain effective teams, how to get the best out of digital technologies, and we'll talk about the role of general practice within integrated care systems too. Book your place today. Click on the link in the show notes. Welcome back. If we just step back a little bit and and talk about your career so far and your personal approach to leadership, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey and what's led you to where you are now? It's really interesting to reflect back over my kind of journey through healthcare. But if I could really quickly start with the context of kind of why I focus on the things that I focus on. Um, So my parents, my dad's uh, a refugee from Uganda. He came here actually 50 years ago this summer. Um, He came to Newbury in a refugee camp um, and he was there for six months. And my mum was an economic migrant from Kenya. They met at Sunderland Polytechnic uh, and then they moved to the south and they set up a community pharmacy. And those were the days of the, um, you know, 12 hour, seven day community pharmacies. So I was um, quite rightly in one of the wire baskets uh, next to the till for most of my formative years. I only spoke Gujarati. I was in that basket day in, day out, to the point that still um, their patients, um, and now, now they retired about 10 days ago, which was very emotional for all of us. Um, but even to that day, when I, I was there for their last day, we had patients come in and say, oh, it's you from, you know, we saw you when you were a baby next to the till. And they talk, and those those that, that community talks to my dad um, really clearly, and they did so much on their retirement day of the fact that they have looked after um in some families four generations of family mr kanani is the person they used to go to you name it it was mr kanani in the in the pharmacy that they would go to and that relationship and that connection into the community i firmly believe is what has driven me through different parts of my career. The other thing that dad talks about really clearly is you do things, he says in Gujarati Dildina, you do things with your heart. And so I think in terms of your question about my leadership, my leadership style, um, it is very much about you do things with your heart, you do things that you're passionate about, you focus on the things that matter. And although we all do it, you try really hard not to be somebody that you're not just to try and fit in. And um, I'll be honest, Joe, I often don't fit in and um, I'm trying to be more comfortable with that. But anyway, I I went through medical school. Um, I loved every placement that I had, but it was when I was redesigning services in an acute trust. That's really when I fell in love with general practice because I 
got time speaking to GPs who would tell me about their relationship with their community. And something resonated back to that relationship I, I saw my parents have with the community. So I, I became a GP, but I had the longest training ever. I had my kids. I worked in the PCT. I then worked at the CCG worked for NHS Direct when it became 111. I worked on national quality improvement. So I did lots of different things that eventually took me to working back in the CCG. Commissioning is what I loved. I loved proper strategic commissioning. When you think about a community and you can design stuff with partners around that community. Um, And I hit a bit of a wall at uh, at a point where um, I I had been... um, commended on sort of our leadership, our clinical outcomes, some of the best in the country, um, the best staff survey, most diverse CCG board, but our money was still off. Um, and I remember actually leaving this building, uh, NHSE and I, uh, in tears, uh, uh, tears of frustration, because the stuff that really mattered, those clinical outcomes and that, um, that, that wasn't as important as, um, you know, the inherited deficit position. And so I thought, actually, probably the best thing is to come and work here, uh, NHSE and I, um, and understand more about kind of some of the things that my colleagues have to deal with in order to kind of deliver high quality healthcare in England. And that's that's our passion. That's our purpose. And you've talked there about going with your heart, focused on clinical outcomes and community. And I just want to ask you a question about your current role at a national level. And I'd imagine that in your role as at the national level, it has certain demands, such as taking on the role of spokesperson, being visible in difficult debates, and potentially being at odds with other GP colleagues from time to time. So a massive amount of tension. How do you navigate those tensions and stay true to being a compassionate leader? Oh, what a question. Um, so I think for me, it's about, first of all, being really clear about what my value set is, um, what's important to kind of me as an individual, than me as a as a parent, as a healthcare professional, as part of a community, sort of understanding where those different tensions might lie. And through that lens, if you're thinking about it through that lens, if you're thinking about it through the care that a person can access, then you do have to make decisions that sometimes do come under scrutiny um, by your own colleagues. And that has happened again and again, Joe. It's incredibly hard. As, uh, you know, I have come on and off social media more times than I care to remember because I've uh, I've tried really hard to be present in the debates. So if if you know, I can I can take challenge, and I've um, taken plenty. Um, when it got quite personal, I tried to then step away, regroup, and and focus because uh, you know I needed to, I wanted to be there, kind of for the long haul. Um, but I have to keep reminding myself my sense of purpose is strong, and that you know I'm. I will do what I need to, to do the best for the communities that I'm there to care for and represent. Um, and that does come under question. And, um, you know, people will in, will question your integrity, but that's why your, your kind of core value set is so important. Um, and I do think it's okay to be authentic and genuine, you know. And actually what I'm trying really hard to do is um, talk about the fact that this is difficult. Talk about the fact that we are making difficult decisions in parameters and scenarios that people can't imagine. Um, And that it's okay, you know, we're not always going to get it right. But what we do is you lead with integrity, you lead with your passion and your value set. So um, if you get it wrong, let's talk about it. Let's learn from it. Let's say it's okay to get things wrong. But if we learn from it and if we talk about it, then actually we've got a better chance of doing a better job for our communities as well. Absolutely. And what fantastic role modelling that you've been doing, Nikki, to really promote compassionate and inclusive leadership. 
by showing your integrity and your vulnerability, really, really important leadership attributes for the 21st century. You've been known for almost subverting the usual communication style that you'd expect from someone in a national role. For example, using WhatsApp, being on social media. To talk to clinicians in a more informal, responsive way, it feels countercultural. So really interested in the positives and the impact of this approach, how you've coped or the advice you'd give to somebody else that had to deal with some of those responses you've had in that social media environment. And also, was that a conscious choice to communicate in that way and to be that kind of leader? It wasn't a choice as such, Jane. What I found, though, really early on is that, so when I was a CCG chief officer, it was really easy to be connected to my 72 members of staff um, and then into the communities because I had my community networks and I could hear and feel what was going on. And that would be confirmed when I was a local GP or not. And then I could go, oh, that didn't work. Let's do something different. When I came into this role, it was so it felt so far away from the front line of, of real life. Um, it, I couldn't lead in the way that I normally do. I couldn't hear what was happening. I didn't understand what was happening well enough apart from my own personal view but it was a national role so my personal view isn't enough I needed to have that that stretch across um, backgrounds and experience and expertise and geography Uh, so we did start with some whatsapp groups and I was really clear you know I don't publish anything on here that hasn't already been published but I will enter debate I will enter healthy constructive um, debate and criticism because otherwise I won't understand what's happening so I now have 52 different groups on WhatsApp um, all represent different parts of the system, different combinations of people. The majority are full, around 256 people. Some are definitely in more than one group, but I mean, it's an incredible powerhouse of people who do inform what I think and what I do and how I behave. And that has to be right. I cannot lead in a in a, in a vacuum or on an island or in a silo. That is exactly the opposite of the sort of person I am anyway. So that helps me to sort of focus. And sometimes, you know, it can get a little grim. Actually, what's interesting is on the WhatsApp groups, people are incredibly thoughtful. So I, th- I think from what I've heard, what I understand, um, and certainly the feedback I get is people say, well, actually, we see you're human. So people don't tend to be as cruel. On social media, people can be really cool, <laughs> um, you know, professional colleagues as well as others. Um, I coped with the anti-vax activity much better than I did with the professional challenge because um, sometimes it would get kind of anonymised and quite uh, gritty. So in terms of advice to others, well, first of all, don't be afraid to connect into um places spaces and people you know actually if we want to do our jobs properly we have to hear and learn and understand what's happening in the real world whatever the real world is so it's absolutely right to have those networks but back those up with networks that can look out for you as well so I have lots of supportive mainly female networks I have lots of supportive you know women who are women of color networks you know so I can look at it through different lenses and actually they will often pick up when something is going off a little bit and they'll say it's okay you're making this decision or you're 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 taking this feedback and it's it feels challenging but we understand that you're doing it facts why and so reason so they just help to kind of reframe things sometimes so that's that's kind of on the kind of the whatsapp type networks but on social media be honest but also be brave it's brave to come off sometimes so initially I thought bravery meant just always being there and taking the punches and then over time I realized that actually I, 
I don't need to be someone's punching bag. Up to a point, I get it. That's fine. But some of it was getting really kind of, um, actually, you know, really vile. And I thought, actually, it's okay for me just to step back for a moment to breathe, to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not disappearing from the conversation. I'm there. More people have my number in this country than don't, I think. You know, it's my personal number. They can message me. They can tell me stuff. And I will take it on board and I will work out how to learn from it, solve it, do something with it. But we can be kind as well. And we can do that in a kind and constructive way. So don't be afraid to protect your your own self and your own heart, because actually, if we want more compassionate leaders, we need to look after their hearts and souls as, as well. Thank you. And thanks for trailblazing in that way in terms of communication and the advice. So my final question, Nikki, for you today is what advice would you give to emerging leaders in health and care? They're the future. What advice would you give to them? Well, first of all, um, what I said to the medical students this earlier today is um, actually my trainee said it to the medical students because we talk about this quite a bit. Um, you're often a leader now. So you will have something now that you will be able to do that will make a difference to one person or 10 people or a million people. Um, be brave. Take those opportunities. It's okay not to know everything. Um, I've certainly been through the phase. I still do at times thinking that I need to <laughs> I need to know the answer to everything. I don't. And you don't either. And actually learning where your gaps are and bringing a team around you is really important. So the other thing, apart from kind of being brave and taking opportunities is keep that ladder out. Um, I don't care if it's a horizontal ladder or a vertical ladder. We have to take each other with us. Uh, too many times I've had, you know, women as much as anything sort of cut off other people around me. Um, that's not okay. We have a responsibility as humans to take people with us. So if you're um, a leader, an emerging leader, you know, look for the next opportunity. Be brave and take it, but also make sure you're bringing a whole bunch of people along behind you. Um, and there's no rush. I certainly around the time of my son, I was thinking, oh, gosh, I have to do this and I have to do that. And I, there isn't. Um, we've got a really, really, really long lifetime. Um, and it's OK to take time and do stuff that you enjoy, do stuff that energizes you, do stuff that you feel really proud to be part of because I can guarantee you will keep going and you will keep going in the way that many of us have done over the last few years because um, that's what gives you energy and that is what gives you the ability to be confident in your leadership style and it doesn't have to be the old kind of past style but it can be a way that feels really real and authentic to you um, build in it with your heart um, because you really are working and leading and, and behaving with heart first and heart at the soul of everything that you do. Thank you, Nikki. What an inspiring answer. And it's been a real joy to be talking with you today. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. And continue with your energy and your leadership style. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, Nikki, for joining me. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter at the Kings Fund account. We'd really love to hear from you. If you want to learn more about compassionate and inclusive leadership, take a look at our free online course, an introduction to leading for kindness and compassion, and our explainer on what is compassionate leadership. There's a link to both of these in the show notes. This episode was edited by Bespoken Media. 
Thank you also to our podcast team for this episode, Charlotte Wickens, Becky Baird, Kieran Chauhan and Ian Ford. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We very much hope you can join us next time.